Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Let me just start there. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. It's a really cryptic verse. I mean, it's packed with meaning, and yet Paul just rattles it off as if we should know exactly what he's talking about. And unfortunately, today, we, it's, just, it's nearly impossible to figure out what he's talking about unless we just jump back into the context. It really is. Comments. This verse, when misunderstood from its larger context, will invariably lead the reader to the, to the incorrect conclusion that Paul is advocating complete and mitzvah by mitzvah, commandment by commandment, Torah submission for everyone wishing to attain right standing with the Almighty. That is, the first century Judaism's... I'm sorry, that, let me pause. In other words, t if we just read the verse by itself, it seems to say, look at it, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, everyone who does not continue to do everything... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book. So it's almost like Paul saying, look, you guys, you guys want to be Torah observant and be, and, and be righteous before God? The only way to do it is if you do everything written in the book, and then you'll be righteous. And then Paul would come along and let that sink in for a little bit, and then he would come along and say, I'm not speaking in truth, I'm speaking in, in, in caricature now. He'd come along and say, but of course we know that no one can keep everything in the book of the law, so it's futile. Why don't you just give up now, stop trying, walk away from the law, because you can't keep it all and following with God's mercy. Theologically, that's what the church presents. There are, there's fundamental problems with that approach. Okay, let's read this and then I'll go back and comment. That the first century Judaisms did not advocate a view which required complete Torah obedience before one could be counted as a covenant member is attested to in the later rabbinic compilations that survived the destruction of the temple. Simply put, no one in Paul's day thought that a person could practically walk out each and every single commandment. Nor did anyone in Paul's day believe that God expected such obedience from Israel. God never asked anyone that. But that is the way that many today, not Jews, but Christians, feel that the Judaisms wield it. In other words, your average Christian looks over at your average Jew and thinks that the Jewish people think that if they keep all the law, they'll be righteous. And the Christian kind of snickers and thinks to himself, no one can keep all the law. If he would just understand that, he would leave that system and jump over to grace. That's, what, that's what's going through the mind of, of most Christians. And with that mind view, we also jump back down into Paul and we go, see, here's proof. Paul says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, it curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book. So, you're thinking, how do we get ourselves out of that corner? It sounds like Paul's like, you know, 
it sounds like that view that, that the church is saying is right. No, such a notion finds its home among ignorant ideology and theology born out of ignorance to the laws of God and the ways of God. In other words, people who hold that view that God expects them to keep all of the law, that person themselves don't understand the law. And people who think that other people, such as Jews, hold that view, are also ignorant of the very Torah that they're supposing that that person is trying to keep. So there's ignorance on both sides. Um, our verse is said in a, con in a contrast to the previous statement made in verse 6, where Avraham is said to have been considered righteous on the basis of his faith. That was our study last week. By comparison, those who do not imitate Avraham, but instead seek to circumvent God's method of declaring a person righteous, actually fall into the track of, trap of legalism. Now, let me pause. Let me tell you why there's a few reasons wrong. Uh, let me tell you why there's a few... Let's see, I'm, I'm trying to combat two things. Let me do them both. There's a problem with saying that God expects us to keep the law to be righteous, and there's a problem with Paul ever combating such a notion. There's a problem with both sides. The fundamental problem of, of thinking that God expects us to keep the entire law and we're cursed if we don't is that the law is not written for everyone in the sense that everyone in the law, the, the law has breakdowns. The law has um, commandments for men, commandments for women, commandments for priests, commandments for kings, commandments for, for females, commandments for males. I mean, you have separation. And so all of this is assumed under the package called law, the whole document called law or Torah. And if we took this document as a whole, and I gave it to you and I said, okay, let's say I'm Moses, and I take this whole document, I say, okay, Asha, if you keep this entire document, you will be righteous before God. The, the immediate problem with that approach is that the parts that are written for men, she can't keep. The parts that are written, are you a priest? Are you a king? Okay, those parts she also can't keep. So at, at, that, at, that, at that moment, if I am God and I'm thinking, I'll give you eternal life, you know, door number one, if you keep this entire law. At that point, I, God, am sadistic because I know no one can do it. I know no one single person can do it because she's a female she can't do the ones that are male-oriented or priest-oriented or king-oriented. And for me to punish her for that, what kind of a god am I? I'm, I'm asking an impossible standard of her, and I'm punishing her for failing to keep the impossible standard? That's like having a dog and saying, okay, Fido, jump on the roof. Go, go, Fido. And he's like, ooh, ooh. He jumps as high as he can, but he can't. And then I spank the dog. Bad, Fido, you didn't obey me. That's a cruel owner. Why would you punish your dog for something that he cannot achieve? God is not that way either. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. God would not curse us if he knew that we couldn't do everything written in the book of the law in that manner. So that's not the way the, the law, the verse should be understood. Paul's not asking all Israel, okay, you guys need to keep all the law and then God will bless you. And if you don't keep all the law, he'll curse you. Because Paul knows that, that all the law can't be kept in that in that way. That's, that's, that's a wrong-headed notion. And so for us to come along in the 21st century and go, well, gosh, the Jews over there, they're trying to keep all the law. And because we know that no one can keep the law, therefore God's going to curse them or something. Something weird. That It's not meant to be that way. In fact, watch this. It gets even more complicated. This little package that I gave you called the law, it contains a bunch of do's and it contains a bunch of don'ts. Some of the do's are like keep the Sabbath, keep kosher, honor the Lord your God, love your neighbor, all that stuff. Some of the don'ts are like, you know, don't commit idolatry, don't commit sexual sin, don't do all those things. But guess what some of the other do's are in there? Do bring a sacrifice. So if you're thinking simplistically of, of a grocery list, I'm going to go off and check all those, the do's. One of the do's is bring a sacrifice. Well, 
you don't bring a sacrifice unless you sin in some contexts. So that means it's actually assuming that you would sin first. And of course, you are going to sin, <laughs> right? Because you're human. So the, the, the real disobedience is not in bringing the sacrifice outside of sin. The real disobedience is sinning and not bringing the sacrifice. That's the real disobedience. You don't... Not at well... Well, let's just say you're trying to go down the list and check off, like a to-do list, you know? Like, like we have a, you know, you wake up in the morning, you got a little piece of paper, you got ten things on the list. Things I have to do today, okay? In a simplistic mindset, we would, have to, we would actually have to go and do every one of the things. Well, if one of the things says bring a sacrifice, and it's a sin offering, because not all the sacrifices deal with sin, but if one of the, one of the, do, the do's is bring a, bring a sin sacrifice, what does that do presuppose? That you've sinned. In other words, the Torah doesn't tell us to sin. It makes provision for when we do sin. Therefore, if I'm thinking this is just a to-do list that I need to follow, I actually have to do the ones that say bring... In fact, there's a lot of, of commandments that deal with sacrifices. So, it's not the type of document where I just check off what I need to do and then I get into heaven. I get to the, you know, heaven, uh, St. Peter's... I get to Heaven's Gate in St. Peter's there, and I show them my checklist and show them where I checked off everything. It doesn't work that way. That's, not, that's, that's why I said it stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the Torah works. It's not a simplistic list that we can do. So for, the, for, for anyone to read Paul as forbidding that is to misunderstand that Paul would never forbid not... Paul would never forbid keeping the law that way because Paul would never think that way. That's the point. He would never say... All who rely on observing the law are under curse, for it's written to curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Therefore, you guys are cursed if you try and do everything and you, can't, and you fail to do it. Therefore, just stop trying and come over to grace. Paul would never say that because Paul would not look at the law and go, gosh, I've got to keep everything. Is that, am I reaching someone here? Am I, I know there's probably some questions. Anyone to, to, to say that that, yeah. Now, at the superstitious level, you, again, you do have people who go, well, as long as I just do my best, I'm okay. But even them, even at that level... The, the Torah does not expect perfection. It never did. It anticipates your failure and makes provision for your failure. God never said to Israel, even at, even at the moment of Sinai, when everything was like at, its, at the height of its, you know, before Israel had gone into gross sin, gross idolatry, he never said, Israel, you better keep it all or I'm going to curse you. God never said that. At least not in that, in that framework. It, it's just not... Even if we read it that way, we got to understand, we have to decrypt it. I know it's a little confusing, like, but aren't we supposed to do everything written in the Torah? I'll get to that. <laughs> We're going to get to that, too. All right. When right. I'm right in the middle of the um, paragraph. Uh, David, let me give you that. Or more or less, like, right in the middle of there somewhere. Starting with the word when. When Shaul uses a statement like, all who rely on observing the law, because this is what you just kind of asked. He is referring to two positions. There are two, there's two errors that he's addressing. One is more relevant for his day, and the other one is by the inspiration of the Spirit would apply to anyone from his day forward. The Torah has that ability, as you all know, to speak first and foremost to the people who, who initially receive it. So when Paul writes a letter, you, as the Torah student, and me too, the first application I should be looking for is the people who the letter was written to. Before I make personal application to myself, I should first seek to understand the historical context. Who's in Mark's ex uh, uh, um, 
yeah, his, his hermeneutics class? Yeah, he'll tell you that as well. Before you say, well, what does this mean to me? You better understand what it meant to them. Period. So when he says, all who rely on observing the law are under the curse, we first have to understand how were they impacted by the statement. All right. When he says, all who rely on observing the law, he's referring to two positions. Now let me go, for the sake, I need to look up who has, and let me see if I have mine with me. I need to look at a different translation for a split second because I believe that it's just the phrase all who rely on um, works. I need KJV for a split second. Sometimes the paraphrases work against you because you want to know what the original Greek construct is so that you can see if there were words added to clarify. Not that adding words is wrong, but sometimes you just want what it says. For as many as are of works of the law. Yeah. The, the Greek, it's our famous Greek phrase. For as many as are, and it's actually ek. Um, ek is out of. I'll explain what that means in a second. Ergon namos. Namos. Law. Ergon. Works. There's no definite article. There's no ho. That's a definite article in, in Greek. Um, so, or oh. Actually, I think the H is silent. There, it, it just says, it, for as many as are, ek, out of. Ergon namas. It doesn't really say, like our translation says, all who rely on observing the law. The translators of the version I'm showing you translate the word ergon works as observing. Law is namas. It's not really observing the law. It should be like it was in other places where it simply says works of law. So more lit, more woodenly would say for as many as are out of, because that's what ek means, out of. Um, and the opposite of out of, of ek is e-i-e-i-s e-s which is where we get the word eisegesis ek is means like coming from or stemming from or the idea is that the there's something that's a source and then something springs from it and so the emphasis is on where the thing is getting its information like this like if like if we were listening to a sound and we, but if the sound was above us we couldn't tell where the sound was coming from but if i brought a speaker in the room and set it here and I just played a sound, well then everyone would, would, could observe that the sound is coming out of the speaker. The ek is trying to convey that. It springs forth from, or it, it's, it's a direction, it's motion. Something's coming out of something else. Um, it, this is its source, and then it moves out of that. So, he says, um, for as many as are of the works of the law. Again, the, the, the the and the the, if you have a translation that says that, it's not there. It just says, as many as are ek ergon namas, of works law. So, works of law, we've already determined from Paul's point of view, does not mean Torah observance. It does not mean keeping the law. Therefore, observing the law is a wrong translation right now. It really means those who rely on the policy that we've already described before, which is what? The proselyte conversion policy. In other words, all who rely, we, we could say it a few different ways. For the Jewish person, we would say all who rely on Jewish identity. And that's what works of law would mean in Paul's day speaking to a Jew. If I, Paul, a Jew, were speaking to another Jew with no Gentiles present, I would say, if you're relying on your Jewish identity, um, you're under a curse, for it's written, curse that everyone does not continue written in the book of the law. That's why I'd say to a Jew. To a Gentile, I would say, if you're relying on becoming a Jew, so I just rephrase it to fit whoever I'm speaking to. But works of law means the same thing in that setting. It, it still boils down to Jewish identity. Whether you're born Jew, that is to say natural, or you by your Judaism, <laughs> like the Gentiles were doing, right? That's more or less what they were doing. They were, they were going into the market of Jews and buying an identity for themselves. That's what the conversion 
uh, uh, clinics were for. Yes. You lost? He's quoting. Yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to that. Yeah. I know. Yeah, look. We're there. You're just jumping ahead of me. Yeah. Hold, hold. Yeah, just hang on. But you know what? I appreciate it because that your mind's going there is right. Your mind should be going, where in the Torah have I heard this phrase before? That's what you should be doing. Going, wait a minute, wait a minute. And that's what you should be doing. We're going to go there in a second. We're just explaining. The, the, I'm breaking the verse down according to its clauses. Um, so when Shaul uses a statement like all who rely on observing the law, he's referring to two positions. One, firstly, and this is chiefly. Firstly, he is speaking to those who believed that covenant status was extended to them by God due to ethnic status, whether native born or convert. In other words, in Paul's day, the big, the big to-do was being a Jew. Okay? The big to-do was not changing your heart or, or having faith. The big to-do was just getting Jewish status. You've got to understand that that's the simplistic mindset that they had in the first century. Being a Jew was, was kind of ripped from any association with having faith or um, being faithful or other stuff like that. It was really just, gosh, if I can just become a Jew, then I'm in. All right. Um, such individuals, instead of living within the blessing of Hashem, were in reality found to be the object of God's curse. Why? Because instead of submitting to God's way of making a person righteous, they were said to be setting up their own way of righteousness, a level charged against unbelieving Israel by Shaul himself in Romans 9.31, as well as um, verse 32 through chapter 10.3. There's a whole set there. If we were to stop and do a sub, an excursus on Romans, we'd see that that's what Paul's saying to Israel. He's saying, you set up your own system of righteousness. And again, the church looks at that and says, see, this is proof the Jews are trying to keep the Torah to be saved. I'm like, no, that's proof that the Jews are trying to say to God, we're Jewish, let us in. That's what they're saying to God. That's their system of righteousness, is their Jewish identity. All right, but that's only half the coin, okay? Everything in Judaism is seen from a be-do principle. So we got this coin going on, and one side of the coin is, uh, let's see, is identity, and the other side of the coin is um, covenant keeping of swords k-e-e-p-i-n-g in other words commandment keeping covenant commandment they're not really keeping the covenant because they fail to exercise faith but we're going to get to that in a second um secondly he is teaching against any superstitious i think your version says superstition I, there's a typo there it says superstitious notion that god maintains covenant status to the individual and i think there's a, some slight wording difference now so I'll read you the correct version. God maintains covenant status to the individual. I think yours says extends. should say maintains. Uh, covenant status to the individual who simply avails. I know yours says different, and, and if you printed mine off the web, it says different. But everybody that I just handed out, yours is reading what mine's reading. Um, uh, extends, I'm sorry, let me go back. Secondly, he is teaching against any superstitious notions that God maintains covenant status to the individual who simply avails himself of Torah obedience outside of genuine faith to the giver of the Torah. That's the second thing. That would cut down through the ages. So the first one would apply to them to there, and the second would might apply to anyone later on who was not privy to say to the first century Judaism's real problem. This is proven by the conditional clause, as she pointed out earlier, all who rely on. Otherwise, Paul would not, Paul would not, 
Paul's very careful when he wants the um, when he wants the audience to catch the sting. He'll say to you, to those of you who blah blah blah, to those of you who blah blah blah. But by him instead saying all who blah blah blah, the Spirit is allowing the application to both be for them and for subsequent generations. It's the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Sometimes the people in the text were doing something wrong, and the Spirit tells the prophet or the writer or whoever, the apostle, to come in and rebuke them. And the, the rebuke that we are privy to, you know, uh, 2,000 years later, is a prescription for them. It's not a prescription for us if we're not going through the same thing. Other times the Spirit, looking down through the quarter of time and knowing that others would, would follow in the disobedient example of these people, allows the writer to, to make a descriptive um, rebuke instead of a prescriptive rebuke. One that's not just for them, but one that captures um, uh, rebuke for us as well if we fall into the same camp. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'm glad you were listening. <laughs> All right. Somebody's listening to our show. Yeah, in a sense, sometimes God's like, God knowing the end from the beginning can, look down, can write something that will apply very strongly to us as strong as it applied to someone 2,000 years ago. Other times, it's just something for them, and because it's now recorded scripture, we're privy to it, but it's first and foremost for them, and it may not even apply to us. It may not even get to that level. So, all right. So, to what would the individual be relying on for righteousness? And again, it must be either his ethnic status or his Torah observance. This is the closest Paul comes to saying Torah observance will not make you righteous in this passage, in this verse, this set right here. Um, but other than that, he never comes out and just, he never just comes right out and says, gosh, if you try to keep the Torah to be righteous, you'll not be saved. Because he wouldn't have to say that. Because no one would have believed that, at least at the, at the teaching level. Maybe, again, down at the, down at the uh, uh, superstitious level, it gets said. In other words, why would a preacher have to step up to the pulpit and explain to his crowd, it's not about being good that'll make you saved. Well, that's a, I won't go there. Um, it must be either his ethnic status or his Torah observance. Paul would have argued against either view. All right, now let's go where David wanted to go. The phrase, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, is lifted from Deuteronomy, <laughs> as he pointed out indicated by the familiar, for it is written. That's what Paul says, right? For it is written, cursed is everyone. In other words, Paul's making his argument from Scripture. So, of course, whenever he says, for it is written, it's a clause that links the two arguments. He gives the rebuke, then he says, for it is written, then he gives his proof text. In other words, the text is explaining the rebuke. That's, they're linked together by for it is written. He doesn't just... It's like It'd be like me saying... Um, watch this. Is this coffee cold? This coffee is cold. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue written in the course of the book. My first statement has nothing to do with my quote in what I just, my little example here. Is this coffee cold? For it is written. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't just tell somebody something and then say for it is written like he just suddenly thought of a scripture. No. He tells somebody something and then the for it is written is connected or associated with whatever he just said. So the key to understanding the first part of the verse is to going and reading the for it is written and seeing how it explains the rebuke. That's where your question came in. It's lifted from Deuteronomy. Paul is going to prove his argument that lasting covenant membership is granted to those exercising faith directly from the Torah itself. 
The reference here by Shaul, however, is neither a direct quote from the Masoretic Hebrew text. I've looked it up. It's not. Nor, and I think some of your versions say or. It should say nor. I missed it in there. Nor a direct quote from the Greek Septuagint. In other words, Paul's paraphrasing. Okay? Which is okay. I know some people cry foul. Well, if the Holy Spirit were, if Paul were really under the inspiration of the Spirit, wouldn't the Spirit have told him exactly what the verse said? Verse per verse, letter for letter, you know, word for word. We're going to get into textual criticism after all. No, Paul can paraphrase. All the writers do it. Even the rabbis do it. They just cry foul whenever New Testament writers do it. All right. Um, They really do. Yeah, opponents of the gospel today, anti-missionaries, they think, well, if Paul was such a Torah Pharisee, how come he didn't know the verse? Why did he misquote it? You can paraphrase. Yeah, we all paraphrase. Give me a break. Cut him some slack is what I'm saying. All right. He may be paraphrasing the general meaning of the verse for his readers. The meaning is nevertheless captured by Shaul. Now, here's the meaning of the passage. The covenant, and this is for David too, the covenant member to be, as well as the existing covenant member, must follow all that God has spoken to do. They really should. They really must. But look at my footnote to 42. This is a condition agreed upon by corporate Israel herself at the inauguration of the covenant of Mount Sinai as recorded by Moshe in Exodus 19. This is what I was bringing out in the, in the passage today. When, God's, when, when all the people, as one people said, all that you've said we will do. They, the Torah records that they answered as a people. But it doesn't record that they answered individually. So what if God then says, okay, I am Lord your God, you shall have no other gods, and God spoke corporately? Then we have one guy in the camp go off and have other gods, and then when God pulls him off to into a room privately and says, didn't you hear what I said to the group about you should have no other gods? The guy could cry foul and go, well, for one, you were speaking to the group, and number two, I never agreed to it. You know, we, we can get down to that when, when it comes to going, you know, for God judging us. We, we've done this as, as, as group. You know, the whole, the whole corporation goes down, and eventually we say, well, I wasn't part of the group. I mean, I was working there, but I was just a janitor. You know, don't, don't, I didn't agree to what they did. I didn't consent to it. So, but the Torah uses language that sometimes either captures the entire group or speaks to every individual. Yeah, and so it really does say all that we have said we will do. Um, but look, picking and choosing, however, which commandments are relevant and which ones aren't is not left to the covenant member. When the covenant member says to God, all that you've said I will do, and it's, and it's like one-on-one. It's like I'm God and you're the one person. There's two million people at the foot of Sinai, but I'm speaking as if I'm, I'm using second person singular, as if I'm speaking to you, and you're answering to me as if you and I are the only ones in the room. When I say, will you do my covenant, and I give you the whole package, and you say, yes, I will do the entire thing, in one sense, we are supposed to do all of it because we're agreeing to that, but what's in the package that we don't see often is the commandment to have faith. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book, we, including the church today as well as many Jews, we, when we see where it says, cursed is everyone who does not do everything, our mind races towards the things like Sabbath, kosher, dietary, uh, festivals, um, the, 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 um, the uh, sacrifices, loving my neighbor, blah, blah, blah. We start thinking, did I miss anything? And God's standing off the side going, you missed one of the most important ones. Faith. That's a command. Faith is a command. And if we don't have that one, we failed to do the entire list. And watch this. Actually, if we don't start with faith, we can't do any of the list the way that God wants to do. So Paul takes the mitzvah of faith, the commandment to have faith, and he moves it to the top of the list. And anyone who doesn't have the first one not only fails to keep the other 612, 
but fails to keep the list. That's why he would say you're cursed because you failed to have the first and most important mitzvah. Does that make a little more sense now? Suddenly we're going, wow, there's a commandment to have faith? Yeah. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You would have no gods. There's a faith implied there. Also the word faith means faithfulness, but we'll get into that later. So picking and choosing which commandments are relevant and which ones aren't is not left to the covenant member. The covenant member doesn't say, you know what? Like for instance, in ancient Israel, people who joined themselves to Israel didn't walk in. Like you guys are Israel and I'm a foreigner and I come into the group and I'm traveling. And I come and look at your group and I go, wow, look at you all you guys. You guys keep Sabbath, keep kosher. You know, you got these festivals, you got this God, you got sacrifices, you got a temple or a tabernacle. This is pretty cool. How can I become one of you? Can I join your group? Of course, you guys are supposed to say yes, because that's the way it is, right? I can join Israel. But what if I join and I say, you know what? Kosher, that's cool. I can do that. Sabbath, that's cool. I can do that. I'm not going to do those sacrifices things. I can't, I, I'm not going to do that. I'll sign up and do the parts, these parts, the parts I like, but I'm going to edit. I'm going to uh, edit which parts I do. I'm not going to sign up to serve your God and, and kill my sheep and offer it up to my God. That I can't do. Feast, yeah, because I love the schmooze. I love the party. Yeah, I'm going to come and eat with you guys. How ridiculous is that? Would, anyone agree, would God allow any member to get away with that? All right, okay, so picking and choosing is not what you can do. So Paul, knowing that principle, says picking and choosing. Let's just say that there are 613, according to the rabbis, right? We've got a list of 613 commandments. Paul says, gosh, you guys want to do circumcision, you want to do Sabbath, you want to do festivals, you want to schmooze with the Jews, you want to do all these things, but you don't want to do the one that says have faith in God, which means faith in Messiah. You don't want to do that one? You're out. You can't pick and choose. You're cursed. In a sense, he's actually even poking at them. You guys say we have to keep all of them to be faithful, uh, to be acceptable by God? Are you keeping this one? He even kind of, in other words, even if they did believe, let's just say they did, we've got to keep all 613 and then God will accept us. Paul would still step in and go, but you're not keeping the one of faith because the proof is in the pudding. If you had faith, you would believe in Yeshua. That's the kicker. Of course, Paul believes in Yeshua, so he knows that's true. And the same is true today. Jewish people who raise their hand and say, I have faith in God. Do you believe in Yeshua? Heck no. Then you don't have faith in God. End of story. If you had faith in God, you'd have faith in his Messiah because Moses prophesied that God would send him. In Deuteronomy, I'm going to send someone like me, Moses speaking, a prophet like myself. Everything he tells you, listen to. Yet Yeshua showed up, and did they listen to him? No. So that proves they don't have faith in God. So faith, unfortunately, they're not keeping that one. Therefore, Paul says, you're cursed. That's how it works. They were keeping, yeah, they were looking at, it as a, at, a, at a, looking at identity and the doing of it together. Because it starts with identity, and then it goes to covenant, covenant um, keeping. In other words, once you're a Jew, you're in. And once you're in, then you can do it. If you're not a Jew, then you can't even do it. That's how come they kind of work together. Only God is allowed to determine which commandments might have ever fallen to disuse and which ones will not. Because God does take some commands, and he moves them to back burner status. He's allowed to prioritize what we take. When you have two commandments and they're both vying for your attention, God is the one who says, okay, focus on this one, and this one comes out secondly. He, he prioritizes. That's why Yeshua could walk up and, walk and say, which one is the greatest commandment? What do you mean? Somebody tell me where in the Torah the wording says, this one is the greatest and this one isn't. It doesn't. And yet Yeshua walks into them and says, which one is the greatest? The greatest? 
Isn't that odd that they had already prioritized them? And that Yeshua doesn't correct them for doing it? And then when they answer, he says, that's right? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, okay. Sometimes we just read the narrative and we go, and if you don't really read the Torah, I'm not saying you guys know, but your average person doesn't read the Torah. They go, which one's the greatest? We don't know that, that we don't like, get the, the full scope of what's going on until we realize they're not prioritized. Even if you read the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, it doesn't say, you know, as like a precursor, this one is the greatest. Remember this one, memorize it, you'll be quizzed on it later on. It doesn't say that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. All right. But even more to the point of Shaul's argument here is the historic reality that each and every covenant member bound himself to pursue the righteous one promised by the Torah. Look at the footnote. See Deuteronomy 18, which was understood in Yeshua's day to be referring to the prophet, namely prophet Messiah, as evidenced by the people's reaction in John. The first century Judaisms also inferred and anticipated the coming of a righteous one from numerous passages lifted from the major and minor prophets. In other words, by... by by binding themselves to the covenant, they are binding themselves to the words that said, when the prophet comes, we'll do what he says. It's a legally binding agreement. So that if it says, we'll do what he says, then we're supposed to do what he says. So here's Paul arguing with some of them who had rejected Yeshua. And of course, Yeshua is the only way to be righteous. And so if you're not believing in Yeshua, again, you're not exercising faith, and you're not, you're, you buy, you by virtue of that, you're disobeying something else down there, which is what? Saying that we'd follow the prophet I mean, it's all linked together as far as the faith. Once you have faith, the rest of it falls into place. It, 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 it prioritizes itself. The very thing that a covenant member was expected to do was exercise faith in God and in his Messiah to come. Even though he had not come yet, they said, God, when he comes, we'll trust in him. And then now that he had come by Paul's day, and they had missed it, they were guilty of that charge. That was a charge that Paul could say, you said earlier, when it comes, you'd, you'd believe in him, and now that he came, you, you, you missed it, and therefore, you're in, you're in error. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I will require... Yeah, I'll require... It was, that, it was that strong language. And by Paul recognizing that they're not recognizing Yeshua, and Yeshua's words, by the way, because some of the influences were probably believers. But they were still towing the party line that only Gentiles could come in. And that would run counter to what Yeshua would have taught. After all, Paul was a student of Yeshua. He's not going to come up with this idea on his own. So, yes, it was required of God. And what was God's position for his part? If you failed to follow everything, what was God's reply? Look at it here. The very thing that a covenant member was expected to do was to exercise faith in God and in his Messiah to come, who by Shaul's writing had already arrived, by the way. I must say that's as well for today. The individual who failed to reach this conclusion ultimately found himself a candidate for being karat, cut off. Yeah, if you, if, you, if you failed to matriculate, to graduate towards faith, God could say, well, well, like a tree, gosh, you didn't produce any fruit. Pull out the saw and cut you off. Romans 11 is proof. Cut off by God himself due to lack of faith. My footnote is, again, from Romans 11. That's the proof. God, being the gardener, he has the right to look at the tree and go, hmm, this branch has got fruit. That's good. Look at the next branch and go, hmm, no fruit, and pull out the saw. And we know, of course, fruit is righteousness that's produced in a person's life as a result of the sap flowing through the person, which, of course, is a metaphor for having genuine faith in God, which, of course, means having genuine faith in Yeshua. Therefore, if you've got no fruit in your life, it's because you've got no faith in your life. And God can come along and go, now, what's the problem here? What's your excuse? I've given you tons of opportunities to believe in Yeshua, and you just reject over and over again. No fruit, no stay. 
know, it's like no, no shirt, no service. <laughs> yes. They have um, reduced the Messiah to what the early church recognized as Arianism. A, a, a Messiah who's all man but no God. He's not divine anymore. The first century had a divine Messiah in view. They had, they had a Messiah who could do signs and wonders and, and miracles. And a, and a Messiah who was both God or divine, if I wouldn't use the word divine there, both divine as well as man. They, they, they were looking for a Messiah who was divine but would come to earth. But by today, we've, we've stripped the Messiah of any divinity and now he's completely man, which is what we call Arianism. So what does it do for them? Some of them, some of them don't even look for a man anymore. They just look for a messianic age. But, uh, but for those who look for just a man, the rejection of Yeshua as God is the biggest contention. He can't be the Messiah because he's too divine. We're looking for a Messiah like a normal guy, like you. You know, I saw him born. I, was, I lived on the block with him. You know, we ran around and broke into cars when we were growing up. He could be the Messiah because he's human. And then when the Messiah comes, you know, they're, looking, they're not looking for a divine one. Which is why, unfortunately, when Yeshua said, quoting from Daniel, when, when, the, when, the, when, uh, when uh, the, the high priest asked him, um, you know, where is your kingdom and who do you say you are and all this stuff, and Yeshua said, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. He quotes from Daniel. Well, the messianic figure in the Daniel passage is an exalted figure. If you read the Daniel passage, this person comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom forever. Alright, that's an exalted figure. That's not a mere man if you read the passage. But for Yeshua to stand in front of them, look them in the face and say, I'm that exalted figure? They said, no. The exalted figure was not going to stand in front of us and, and look like a man, no. You know, they were expecting like... They were, in other words, their pendulum was swung to the other side. We're expecting a divine, and here you are too human. Today it's kind of the reverse. They're looking for all human. What does the church say Yeshua is? Divine. So it's like the pendulum's all the way on the other side. The synagogue wants a, a, a man, and yet the church gives them God. And in the first century, they wanted God, and Yeshua gave them a man. Yeah, it's, it's flip-flopped. Yeah, that, that's why they called it blasphemy. Blasphemy. You can't be the Messiah. Not that you can't be God. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is exalted. And if you read the earlier rabbinic texts, and I do see your hand, by the way, if you read the early rabbinic texts, they've got an exalted Messiah all over it. It's great. If you want to argue with the Jew, don't use the new stuff. Use the old stuff. The old wine is better. I can give, I'll give you page after page of rabbis who, who show that Isaiah 53 must be the Messiah. Not like today where they go, he can't be the, that can't be the Messiah, that's Israel. That's, yeah, that's, that's stuck. I'm not saying you do this, but... And by the way, we're not going to finish this tonight. We'll, we'll keep this paper. We'll pick up on this again. Um, that argument, and I have heard that before. Everyone hear her question? Um, her question is, if the, the, the Ten Commandments forbid us from worshiping a man or a figure or a, a representation, an image of a man, then how come we can worship Yeshua? The thing is, is that that's the, that is the mystery of the Incarnation, is that Yeshua is not... 50% God and 50% man, and we're supposed to accept the 50% that's God and reject the 50% that's man. He's 100% God as well as 100% man. And that's where our mind goes tilt. Because when we look at Yeshua, we're not worshiping only a man. We're worshiping fully God. And that's how we can get around that. God steps up to us and says, I'm God. Now, if he, if he didn't give us the veiled feature of himself, if he wasn't clothed in a man, well then, before he even showed up, when his spirit showed up, we dropped down as dead men. Before, even, we, before we even got to see the show. 
It's kind of like a parade. You ever watch a parade and there's like the, cent- the center float? But before that, you got all these like little floats. You know, first the street is clear and then you can hear the music and then you start seeing the balloons and you look down the street and then you see all these the people marching. But it's not the center float. The center float is like still, you know, all is, is uh, yeah, it's, it's echelons behind. You got all this other stuff. It's kind of like the president when he shows up. He doesn't show up first. You got his motorcade showing up first. You know, you got all the other cars in front of the cops, uh, in front of the president, and then the president shows up. Well, God does that same thing. Before he shows up, his spirit precedes him. And when his spirit hits us, that's when we knock, get knocked out before we, we don't even get to see the show. I mean, look at what happens. You got Ezekiel at the river Hebar in Babylon, and, all, and they're all sitting there, and all of a sudden, something shows up, and they all just drop. And Ezekiel drops into the spirit, and what he's really seeing is just God's entourage until God shows up. So God does what God realizes, you know the stuff I'm made of and the stuff you're made of, they can't, they can't exist in the same time and space. Because I'm infinite, you're so, I'm not saying you are, but well you are, just like me. We're so finite that if, if God showed up in all of his glory, then we'd just like, phew. you know, it's like you could travel to the sun in a spaceship, but you'd never really hit the sun. You'd burn up before you hit the sun. That, the intensity of the sun the heat that the sun gives off would kill you before you'd even hit the... You're like, I want to go visit the sun. If you could get to the sun, you'd die. But the reality is you'll die before you get to the sun. Yeah, It's kind of like that with God. You're like, I want to go see God. Well, you'll die before you get there. He was human. He was 100% human, but he's 100% divine. <laughs> even if we had like an authentic one, like somebody took a picture of Jesus, could we... I, I don't think that we should have focused on it. Yeah, it would seem like it would be... Are, okay, are they are they saying that Christians today worship the man Jesus? Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out what their what their contention is. They might have an issue with the yeah, right. But even the verse in the verse, God is obviously not saying that we cannot worship God. In fact, we worship God and don't worship images. Jesus is more than an image of God. He is the the. I mean, the language even fails us. He's the image of very. I mean. He, the, even the writers had to use limited language, like he's the image of the invisible God. Well, if something is invisible, it doesn't have an image. I mean, y- your, your language gets stretched. I mean, on one hand, on the one, I mean, figure this one out, and then I, I see your hand too, and I'll watch this. Moses writes, I'm sorry, John writes in chapter 1 that no man has ever seen God. Peter says the same thing, no one can see God. And yet Moses writes in chapter, I think it's like 34 or something like that of Exodus, that he and the seven elders saw God. At the very least, we have to reconcile those two verses. John's a Jew. Moses is a Jew. One of them's wrong. In the, in, in, the, in, the natural, in the Greek mindset, one of them's wrong. John says no one has ever seen God. Moses said he and the seven elders saw God. They saw what God... Yeah, they, they, saw, they saw theophany. Yeah, they saw... We would say the pre-incarnate Yeshua, the angel of the Lord. But either way, they're seeing what God says. I created you, so I'm going to make sure you see what, what I allow you to see or what you're supposed to see. Well, um, ask the, first of all, are they Jewish? Or, or would that be their mindset? Okay. Ask them, ask them what they think about um, all the passages where people saw God. Like Moses is the one there that's very clear. Or, or when they saw the angel of the Lord and they bowed down and worshipped. Or things like that. that. You can kind of throw them in the direction to realize that God is, is, does this theophany thing. Where he shows up and he's more than what we expect him to be. But he's limited in that sense. Also, the, yeah, also, um, if the image has not been ordained by God, for instance, the golden calf, they were worshiping God through the image. 
they weren't worshiping another god. They were worshiping God with the use of an image. The image was kind of like the... Yeah. Well, of course, that was forbidden. Yeah, but God made the man. God didn't make the... the, the, the yeah, was created by man, but Yeshua was, was created by God. Yeah. Last question, because I think we're out. We're technically into you guys' like break time. Yeah, and, and I, for that same person, if they have a problem with that, ask them this question. I'll, I'll leave with this. Um, tell them to read Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, and ask them, is God a spirit? Ask them that question first, though. Is God a spirit? Every Jew knows that God's a spirit, right? Then ask them, then, who is the person spoken of in Genesis 1, 2? I can tell you right now, it's the spirit of God. Who, who hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, 2? The Ruach, but it says the Ruach Elohim. Question, and here's the quiz. If God's a spirit, how can the spirit of the spirit hover over the waters? Why doesn't it just say, and God hovered over the waters? Is not God a spirit? Why does it have to say, the spirit of God hovered over the waters? The spirit of the spirit? Something's goofy there. At the very least, it stretches our imagination. The spirit of the spirit. Is the spirit a separate person than God? Is it? I mean, he is, but he isn't. In other words, cause them to start thinking outside the box of God is just this neat little... Yeah. Is anyone else here doing the homework? I guess you're the one. <laughs> I don't know why. All right, well, then you're <laughs> you got the homework. You're the only one. All right, we'll talk about this more next week. No homework yet, because you've already got one. You guys are dismissed. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.